Today's passage is in Psalms 19 on page 456 on the Bibles around the room. I will be reading today's passage in Spanish. Reason being, because God's beauty is grand and diverse, and because we recognize this through using other languages. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, to which you will respond, thanks be to God. We do and say this because we are thankful for the word God has provided us with. Los cielos proclaman la gloria de Dios, y el firmamento desplija la destreza, la destreza de sus manos. Día tras día no cesan de hablar, noche tras noche lo dan a conocer. Hablan sin sonidos ni palabras, su voz jamás se oye. Sin embargo, su mensaje se ha difundido por toda la tierra y sus palabras por todo el mundo. Dios preparó un hogar para el sol en los cielos, y este irrumpe como un novio radiante luego de su boda. Se alegra como un gran atleta ansioso por correr la carrera. El sol sale de un extremo de los cielos y sigue su curso hasta llegar al otro extremo. Nada puede ocultarse de su calor. Las enseñanzas del Señor son perfectas, reaviven el alma. Los decretos del Señor son confiables, hacen sabio al silencio. Los mandamientos del Señor son rectos, traen alegría al corazón. Los mandamientos del Señor son claros, dan buena percepción para vivir. La reverencia al Señor es pura, permanece para siempre. Las leyes del Señor son verdaderas, cada una de ellas es imparcial. Son más deseables que el oro, incluso que el oro más puro. Son más dulces que la miel, incluso la miel que gotea del panal. Si, uh, sirven de advertencia para tu siervo, una gran recompensa para quienes lo obedecen. ¿Cómo puedo conocer todos los pecados escondidos en mi corazón? Límpiame de estas faltas ocultas. Libra a tu siervo de pecar intencionalmente. No permitas que estos pecados se controlen. Me controlen. Entonces estaré libre de culpa y seré inocente para grandes pecados. Que las palabras de mi boca y la meditación de mi corazón sean de tu agrado, oh Señor, mi roca y mi redentor. This is the word of the Lord. Señor, te damos gracias por ser el mismo por día y de noche. Vemos tu hermosura en todo lo que has creado. El testimonio de los cielos se quedan callados, pero se escucha por medio de los hombres y naciones y se entiende en cada lenguaje. Por favor de abrir nuestros oídos y corazones para poder recibir la palabra de hoy por medio de Pastor Kyle. Father, thank you for being the same day in and day out. We see your beauty in everything that you have created. The testimony of the heavens is silent, yet can be heard by men of any nation and understood in any language. Please open our hearts and minds to receive the word Pastor Kyle has prepared for us today. Amen. Well, that was awesome. Thank you, Steph. Good morning, church. 
My name is Kyle. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, not only are we a church that loves the Bible, we're a church that values that God's people is a people of all peoples and all tribes and nations and languages and tongues. And so sometimes we do Bible readings in different languages here. So thank you, Steph. Um, we are going through the book of Psalms. So if you don't have a Bible open, open it up to the book of Psalms. Really easy to grab one of the Bibles. If you just split it in half, you're going to end at the Psalms. All right. So do that. Go to Psalm 19. The word psalm is literally the Hebrew word for song, and uh, this is a book of songs. It's a collection of the, uh, the song book for God's people, and when we look at the book, there's 150 psalms, and it covers the full range of human emotion, and so this is a book that we should read on a regular basis. I challenge you over this time that we're covering this through the summer, through August, that you read the entire psalm book. Um, to do that, you might need to read two or three psalms a day, but you'll cover the whole thing. And it's a thing that we should deeply have imprinted into our hearts. Now, there's several categories of psalms, and people break them up into different categories. Um, but what we've done for this series is we've broken them up into the four categories that we think tell the story of the Bible, which are creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The whole Bible is 66 books. But it's a, a library of books that tells one conclusive story. Amen, Christians? And all that story points to Jesus. And the story begins with creation. And in creation, we see God's glory, God's power, God's revelation of himself. And so when we break up the Psalms, there's several Psalms that are about this about God revealing himself, about God speaking things into existence, about God showing us who he is. And so those are creation psalms, and that's represented by our art over here at the top. The next uh, category of psalms we have is fall. And, and the storyline of the Bible is after God created everything, we as humans rebelled against God and tried to live our own way. And this is when death entered the world, sickness entered the world, brokenness, murder, strife, all of that entered into the world. And so there's a bunch of psalms that cover that category too. And um, so that's where you get songs of lament, songs of confession. You get these weird psalms called imprecatory psalms, which are basically like, like God, kill all my enemies. Um, and that's because we live in a broken world. Uh, and so those are psalms of the fall. The next category of psalms is psalms of redemption. And this is the promise in God's story that no matter how bad or how hard we've fallen, God has promised to rescue his people. Hallelujah. He's, he's promised to come and to bring us home and to do something about our sin. And so uh, these psalms are psalms by which the people of God look to God with hope. And so there's several of those psalms. And then the last category of psalms is uh, restoration psalms. And restoration is the time of the Bible that you see at the very end of the Bible when God comes and makes all things new. Uh, when he restores this broken world and he heals this broken world and he gives uh, the resurrection of life. And so um, those are Psalms looking forward and being thankful and full of praise. And so that's how we're breaking it up. Today we find ourselves on the third and final Psalm that we're going to cover in the category of creation. God's revelation. And what we find in this psalm, Psalm 19, is that God is tenacious in speaking to his people because he really wants his people to know who he is. He is tenaciously speaking. Now, the most tenacious person I know on this planet is my three-year-old nephew named Wyatt. Wyatt 
If he asks you a question and you don't answer, he will just ask and ask and ask and ask. And we've done experiments like how long can we ignore Wyatt? And he'll ask for an hour the same question. Why is the sky blue? Why is the sky blue? Hey, uncle, why is the sky blue? And he goes and goes and goes and goes because he really wants me to hear him and he really wants a response. Now, that tenacity is a little glimpse of the kind of tenacity that God has with us. He is speaking to us all the time. And he speaks to us through his creation. He speaks to us through his word. And he's constantly speaking and speaking and speaking because he wants to get our attention and he wants a response. And so the big idea for this text is this, that God's speaking leads to our seeking. It's not vice versa. It's not the other way around. It's not our seeking leads to God's speaking. He is the one who initiates. It's his speaking that leads to our seeking. Okay? Now, to understand this psalm, when we first read it, it sounds like it should be two separate poems. But it's really not. It's one. And, and, and it has the form and structure of this. The first one is how God speaks to us through creation. And it has a general description, and then it, be, and then it ends in a specific focus. And then the second half of the psalm is how God speaks to us through his word, and it has a general description, and then it has a specific focus. Okay, so that's how we're going to break it down. So first, God speaks to us through the heavens. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, the clouds, the moon, the sun, the stars, All that you see in the sky, the blue sky, the sunset, the sun rises, all of that is God preaching to us. And it says that he declares or proclaims his handiwork. That word proclaims isn't just that he's done it once, but that he's constantly proclaiming to us. God's sermons are speaking to us every single day, every single day. And, and, and he's proclaiming his handiwork. So when you go outside and you look at the sky, or you look at the, the moon and the stars, what you're seeing is God's handiwork. You're not seeing an accident. You're not seeing something that just happened to happen. You're seeing something that is intentional by the genius of our creator. It is his handiwork. Um, and, and then it, it just goes to show us like in verse 2, it shows us that God is really passionate about us knowing who he is. It says in verse uh, 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God is preaching these sermons every single day. Now, that's awesome. That's, tena- that's tenacity right there. I preach two sermons a week, and I get tired. Like, I'm going to go home and take a nice nap after this today, okay? God is like, I ain't tired. I I preach every day, all night, all day, 24-7, 365. I've been doing it for eternity. This is what I do. I preach, and I preach, and I preach. God wants us to hear his voice. And then he says in verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, God's sermon is going out into the entire globe. It says um, that there's, uh, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Because the whole world is covered by sky, the whole world is covered by heavens and the sun, 
um, and the moon and the stars. God is speaking to everyone everywhere. And that's really cool. And first of all, that's really cool because what God is doing in this, it says in verse 2, is he's revealing knowledge. Now this knowledge, is, 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 is like this. When you look at the stars, you see God's knowledge. When you look at the clouds, you see God's genius. I mean, isn't it cool? Have you thought about that for a moment? That the clouds form because it's evaporated water from the ocean. And then they come over the Sierras and they drop rain and snow on the Sierras, which provides water and feed for all the animals and the plants. Then that runs down hills into creeks and rivers that flow back into the ocean and it goes back up. It's this cycle that just keeps on going and that's God's genius. There's no way that just accidentally happened. That's God's genius. It's God's genius. And then it's not only revealing God's knowledge, it's also revealing knowledge about God. It shows us how God cares. It shows us what God is like. It shows us his power and his love. It shows us all these attributes about God. And so what that means is this. If you want to know about God, get your butt outside. <laughs> it would do us some good to get away from our TVs. It would do us some good to put down Netflix. It would do us some good to, instead of just coming home and hitting the garage door button and going right, outside, right back inside, to step outside and look at the sky for a little while. And you'll learn about your God. And it's really cool that this message is going out into the entire world um, because that means everybody has access to this knowledge about God. Everybody has access to it. But it's also really terrifying because it means there's no excuse for anybody to not follow him. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, but God, you didn't tell me about yourself because God's like, I did in the heavens. I did in the skies. This is what Romans 1 says about it. It's going to be on the screen. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's a common question that I get as a pastor where people ask, well, what about the people who are in the jungle? What about them who don't have access to the Bible? I think this, what Romans is saying is, well, there's enough revealed in the heavens that they should at least know there's a God. There's enough revealed in the skies and the sunsets and the stars and the sun that they should know that God has power. There's enough to produce God-fearing men and women. And so what this means for us is you might be in here exploring Christianity and contemplating, should I give myself to God? And you might say, but no, he hasn't really revealed himself to us. God says, yes, I have. And you are without excuse. And so it's, it's actually a loving invitation for him to say, to you, come to me because I am powerful and I love you. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of it. That's the general description of the heavens. And what it is for us is it's a call to listen. But we need to, in this sense, not listen with our ears. We need to listen with our eyes, our eyeballs. And so in a, in a society that's dominated by technology and phones that basically control us, have you noticed that our phones cause everybody to look down? 
You go to a restaurant, people aren't looking at each other anymore. They're looking down. You go outside, people aren't, you know, go, go to an airport, people are looking down. We're all looking down. And God says, if you're going to listen to me, you need to look up. When you're busy, you look forward. What's coming next? Where do we got to go? But God says, if you want to know about me, you got to look up. Meditation on the person of God requires us to look up and listen with our eyes. And, and, and it's actually really good news for us because it means that thoughtful meditation on God's creation promotes faith. Thoughtful meditation on God's creation promotes faith. If you feel yourself weak or waning in your faith, it might do you some good to carve out some time in your life to have thoughtful meditation on God's creation. Um, there, there's a guy I know named Jim Rippey. He comes here every once in a while. Uh, he was a professional snowboarder. He's actually the, he, he grew up in Quincy and he's the first guy to ever do a backflip on a snowmobile. Pretty cool. And he was a professional snowboarder and he was doing a shoot in Alaska. He got dropped off um, by a helicopter on the top of a mountain in Alaska. And he says that he had this changing moment where he realized and started to give his life to God. He's sitting there on the top of this mountain and he just looks and he says, there's a perfect mountain. There's a perfect mountain. There's a perfect mountain. There's a perfect mountain. There's gotta be a God. There's got to be something bigger than me. But what it took is for him to have a thoughtful meditation on creation. And I think that that's the invitation for all of us. Some of you have been Christians for a long time and you're waning in your faith and it's really just because you're too busy right now and you haven't taken time to get outside and look up and that's what you need to do. And some of you are here and you're exploring and you're wondering, is there a God? And the, and the call for you is get outside and look up and you'll hear him speaking to you. So that's, that's the general description. Now let's focus in on what he has to say about the sun. So he highlights the sun specifically in this passage. He says in verse five or verse four, uh, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. He says he sent a tent for his son. So he's writing from his perspective and he's saying that the, the heavens are kind of like an upside down bowl or a tent and the sun is just kind of circulating underneath. Now, many people have pointed to this, by the way, and just said, well, this is why we can't trust the Bible because it doesn't line up with science. But what you need to remember is the psalm book is, it's songs, it's poetry, not science. Okay, he's not trying to give a scientific explanation of how the sun works and that it's actually the earth that's spinning that makes it seem like the sun is going around us. He's not doing that. Rather, what he's doing, he's just writing from his perspective. And, and from our perspective as humans, it really does look like the sun is captured in this tent. And it's really funny what he says. He says, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And so he gives this picture of the sun, he says, the sun comes up with the joy of a groom after his wedding night. So one of the, my favorite things about being in this church is we have a lot of young people and people fall in love and they propose and they get married and leading up to the wedding, there's always so much stress. How are you doing? I'm just so stressed out. Oh my gosh, got all this. And then they get married and the wedding happens and then you see them the next weekend. You're like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, I'm great. I'm good. I'm great. They're just all smiles. They're glowing. They're full of joy, you know, because the wedding night has happened. And that's good. And so he says that's what the sun is like. He comes up every day with that kind of joy, that kind of brilliance, that kind of happiness to be here. And then he, and then he says, and he's like a strong man that runs its course with joy. Okay, some of your translations might say champion. 
He's like a champion that runs his course or ultra marathon athlete. Not those, those dudes who run like, you know, a 26.2 marathon. They're running like the 50 mile marathons. These ultra athletes, they just run for 24 hours straight, like Forrest Gump, just keep on running. That's how the sun is. Just the steadfast endurance. He keeps running and running and running. And he does it every day. I ain't tired. I'll do it again tomorrow. I'll do it again tomorrow. That's what the sun does. And, and, and some of you, the men, you might like this one. Um, that word strong man is actually strong warrior. And it's the description of a warrior. And the Hebrews would have understood this. A warrior who has bloodlust after the enemy has been taunting them. And the word's just like, all right, I'm coming at you and I'm not going to stop. That's the kind of tenacity that the sun has as it's rising every single day. And it shows us something about our God. And then it says in verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuits to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now here, this is a description of somebody who grows up in the desert. Now we grow, we, we're in the desert here. And I dare you to go out into the middle of the Black Rock Desert in the middle of summer. You're like, I do. Every, it's called Burning Man. Okay, So you go out there. Go it, just go out there into the middle of the desert, no water, and just try to be out there. You're going to hate it. It's so hot. And you feel like no, ever, no matter where you go, the sun is always finding you out. And that's really bad for a pasty guy like me. I just start blistering like a marshmallow. And, and it just, wherever you go, the sun is just coming down on you. And here's the picture. David is equating this to the nature of God. That God exposes everything. His light seeks out all darkness and exposes it, and he comes at it with heat. There's a sort of um, uh, indignation, indignation that God has, a sort of wrath that God has towards evil, and, and there's nothing that's hidden from his eyes. And so as we contemplate specifically about the sun, it reveals a few things for us about our God. Okay, so first of all, it reveals to us that God is big and in control. From one heavens, side of the heavens to the other. As you look at the sun and you just reflect like, wow, that, like God is in control of this. And it happens every single day. It should give us comfort in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but my life often feels like I'm on a roller coaster without any seatbelt. I feel out of control. Uh, this last two weeks has been a lot like that. I feel like I'm running on fumes. I just feel like chaos is everywhere. And I'm just like happy I stumbled into church today. Um, some of you young families, you feel like this. Like it's just like a tornado in your house every single day. Some of you are going through family situations and you just feel like so chaotic because this person's sick and this person's passing away. And, and there's just so much pain. Sometimes there's so much emotional, emotional turmoil and strife that it just feels chaotic. And what we need to do is we need to look at the sun and we need to be, not just straight at the sun, okay? We need to look and just be reminded that God's got this, that he's in control, that he's big. He's really, really big. And we can actually take comfort in our smallness because it means that the weight of the world isn't bearing on our shoulders. The weight of the world isn't bearing on our shoulders. So the, the second thing it shows us is that God is steadfastly kind. The sun rises every day. Even after the things we did to God yesterday, God still raises up every single day. The scriptures say that his mercies are new every single morning. That, that man, we, we, we are so hard-hearted against God. We do all sorts of awful things, and yet still God makes the sunrise. And we know from science that without the sun, there is no life. 
God gives life and grace to us and mercy every day. Jesus, when he's telling us to forgive our enemies in Matthew chapter 5, he uses this as an example. And he says, for God makes the sun rise on both the, the faithful and the wicked. God is steadfastly forgiving us and, and being kind to us, though we are his enemies. And then the, the next thing it shows us when we think about the sun is that God really is powerful and nothing is hidden from his eyes. There's nothing, there's no sin or no um, uh, sort of rebellion that you've ever done that God doesn't know about. And it bothers God. He has heat towards that, which is a Hebrew idiom for, for indignation or, or wrath towards what is evil. God will search out all injustice in the world and there will be a judgment day. And so it shows us that Holy cow, like this, this idea of being somebody who is under the watch of God is important and it should lead us to ask the question, how then can I be made right with God? Because if God sees everything up in here, I'm a mess. How then can I be made right with God? And that's how we bridge into the next section, which is about the word of God. The way to be made right with God is going to be revealed to us through the word of God. And that is why David loves the word so much. So he gets into verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In this, he's talking about the word of God. And he uses several different words. One of the words that he uses is this idea of law. Now, when he's writing it, he's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. It was Now, in the Torah, that's called God's law. And in the Torah, it's a mixture of two things. It's a mixture of God's work, but also God's expectations. And, and so, in the Torah, we see, in, in the Word of God, that actually pattern just continues throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. This is a book of God's work, but then also His expectations for how we ought to live with Him. And, and so, David is saying that the Torah has some great benefits. And he highlights four benefits of, of living underneath and with the Bible. He highlights four benefits of, of the Bible. The first one is this, is that the Bible uh, revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Anybody feel revived when they read the scriptures sometimes? It revives the soul. That word revive can also mean makes the soul return to its maker. Um, when my, my third son, Bo, was born, he was born purple. And that wasn't normal. And, uh, you know, with the first son, you'd be freaking out. But the third one, we're like, oh, the doctor's probably got it. He's probably good. So he's born purple. And uh, I was just like, well, this is interesting. And I'm standing there and I'm wondering, okay, what's going on? He wasn't crying at first. The doctors very calmly took the baby. They put him on a table over here. They took an oxygen mask and put it on him. And as soon as that oxygen hit his lips, he turned red and he started crying. The oxygen went in and he started doing what he was supposed to do. This is what the word of God does to, it, to us when we get it in us. Um, you know, it's interesting to me that 2 Timothy 3.16 calls the word of God the breath of God. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. And so what that means is when we get into this, God is breathing in us. And then what it causes us is it causes us to immediately return and do what we're supposed to do, which is follow God. It revives us back to life. 
So that's, that's the first benefit. That's why we need to be in. Do you feel like you're dead sometimes? We'll pick up the book and get in the book. Okay, the second thing is it says, the second benefit is it makes wise the simple. Okay, um, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, it's sure. God's testimonies, God's revelation of himself are trustworthy, they're sure. And what it will do for you is it'll make wise the simple. Okay, we're not as smart as we like to think we are. And sometimes we're too smart for our own good. But what the word of God does is it warns us and it helps us. It makes us wise where we're stupid. And so it functions kind of like a wet floor sign. When somebody mops a floor, you know, if, if there was no sign, sometimes you might just be running. And if you were to hit that, you'd fall on your face. We'd all laugh. You might get hurt, but we'll, we'll, we'll laugh first and then help you later. Okay. But what the word of God does is it warns us. It says, listen, listen up here. There's wet floor. Watch your footing. Go this way. It's like a sign that helps us. And so it makes wise the simple. And so when you need wisdom, you need to get into this book. Now, it's not going to tell you everything. It's not going to tell you, like, how come, or, you know, whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons or what college you should go to or what happened to the dinosaurs. It's not going to tell us all of that. But it is going to tell us what we need sufficiently to live a life of godliness and righteousness. And so it's going to help us out. It's going to make you wise. It's going to help you know how to approach different situations. Then the next thing, the next benefit of getting this book in you is it rejoices the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts or the ways of the Lord, the map of the Lord is right. This word can kind of function as a sort of map. Now, remember back in the day when you used to go on a trip and you had to use maps, like paper maps. Remember that? I wonder how many divorces were caused by maps, by arguments between husband and wife. You're looking at it upside down, you know. Um, it was so frustrating. My wife and I went on a trip to Canada and we had maps. We got lost. We didn't know where we were going. Now it is so nice to have Siri. And I'm like, Siri, take me to breakfast. And then she just does it and it's, she just guides me along the way. And you know what it does for me? It brings me so much joy. That is kind of like what the word of God does. He doesn't leave us hanging. It's not like he's like, yeah, you're born. Figure this whole life thing out on your own. He helps us. He guides us. He shows us how to approach relationships. He shows us how to approach him. He helps us know the way that we should go. And that should bring us joy. It should make us happy. And then the fourth benefit here is that it enlightens our eyes. It says here, the um, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening our eyes. See, before you go, it's kind of like you don't know what is pure and what is not pure. It's kind of like when the high school group sometimes does fun things where they have to eat different foods and they have to eat it blindfolded. And they might get a, a pure food placed in front of them and then a really nasty food placed in front of them. And with that blindfold, they don't know. But the blindfold is removed. And with the blindfold removed through the word, we know what is pure in this life and what is impure in this life. And then we can be comforted. And that, that enlightens us. It brings us joy. It, doesn't, it feels like we're not walking around in the darkness. We know the way that we should go. So those are the four benefits. Then David goes into the four approaches to scripture. And the first approach is to fear the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Clean as in, um, or also another word for pure, but also the kind of thing that is like 
when uh, silver is refined seven times until the, it has this idea of, of completely pure, completely clean. This is the fear of the Lord. Now, this is in contrast to the heavens. Jesus says the heavens will pass away. But you know what won't pass away? Your love for God. Our love for God, our reverence for him, our trust in him is something that will remain for all eternity, forever, okay? The rules of the Lord, the second approach, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here's our second approach to the scriptures. It's to believe that they're true. All these books, 66 books, the words of God, the authoritative words of God, they're true. We can trust them. There's a common thing in society to be like, well, that was back then. Maybe God didn't know what he was talking about back then. I heard of an article a couple weeks ago about Jesus, um, and it was written, I think, in the Washington Post, and it said that Jesus didn't know everything he was talking about. But what we've learned about life and human sexuality, now we actually know better than Jesus. That's false. That's not, these words are true. And even if you disagree, guess who's wrong? Not God, you. And I just wonder if that's our approach to the scriptures. I just wonder if that's our approach. Like when, when it comes to something we're really um, excited about in culture or a disagreement that we may have with the Bible, I wonder if we're like, well, maybe we're right and the Bible's wrong. David tells us, no, this word is always right. It's always trustworthy. It's something we need to put our whole hope on. And the reason why that is so important is because when David was writing, there was these other gods that people worshipped and these other Mesopotamian gods. And under those systems, those gods were no better than humans. The only thing that distinguished them from humans is that they had more power and they lived longer. Okay, And so those false gods were no better than humans, and so they were constantly known for telling things to humans and trying to get humans to do things, but then tricking them to, to kind of manipulate them to get what they wanted. But David is saying the real God isn't like that. The real God isn't going to manipulate you. The real God isn't going to be a trickster on you. When you follow his words, you don't have to wonder, am I being tricked? You know that this God, it, his words are true and right and good. And because of that, verse 10 shows us um, that they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. That's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This book is more valuable than gold. Do you believe that? You know, Aladdin's coming out on Netflix. I have to wait till it gets to Netflix. I'm sure you know so. Uh, Aladdin's coming out. And imagine the genie shows up at your house. And he says, I'll give you one of two things. You can have either one. You can have a life full of riches where you never want anything ever again. Or you can be poor and you can suffer and you can have the Bible. Which will you choose? The faithful one says, I'll take the word. Because this is more valuable than gold. May we be a people that actually believe that. And maybe what you really need is all that stuff to get stripped away so you actually would believe. This is more valuable than gold. It's also sweeter than honey and, drip, and the drippings of a honeycomb. So back then, kids, they didn't have like manufactured sugar like we have now. Okay, so honey was like as sweet as it got. I know, it was a terrible time to live, dark times, okay? 
But just imagine, you kids like ice cream, yogurt beach, okay? Think of it like this. It's sweeter than yogurt beach. Sweeter than the cookie dough and the candy that's put on your yogurt beach ice cream. That's these words. And what it shows us is that God's words are not only powerful, they're meant to be delighted in. They're meant to be something savory and sweet that encourages and is kind of like a treat to our soul. And so then lastly, the, the final approach to the word is this. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. The fourth approach is to really believe that there's great blessing in keeping God's word. Now, the reward is not that God's going to give you anything you want if you just follow his commands. It's not like, God, I'll follow your commands if you give me a Lamborghini. And then all of a sudden you get a Lamborghini. That's bad theology. This is, this is more this idea that there's a great result. Great flourishing will happen in your life if you trust God and follow his commands. Great flourishing. Um, and, and it may not be like economic flourishing. It may not be social flourishing, but it'll be spiritual flourishing. It'll be inner flourishing that will be noticeable by the world. And so those are the approaches. And so it just begs the questions as we go through that rich section, do you really view the Bible like this? Do we really value it? Do we really think it's more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey and pure and right and good? Does it really give us comfort? Do we really believe that it's like this roadmap that, to, to, to guide us into human flourishing? Do we really believe that? And if we don't, perhaps the reason we don't is because our approach is wrong. One of my favorite things to do is to go to the gym and watch people who don't know how to work out work out. <laughs> because... Sometimes they'll get to the machine, and hey, you know what? More power to you. You're in the gym. You're trying to make it happen. So I give you power for that. But sometimes you're in a, a machine that's supposed to, like, do this, and you get in there, like, backwards, and you're, like, trying to do this, you know? And you're, like, it's, like, what is going on? And then afterwards, it's funny to hear them talk to their friends, like, I just don't feel that one. It just didn't work. Well, the reason you don't feel it is because your approach was wrong. And with the scriptures, I wonder if maybe the reason why it's not sweeter than honey, it's not better than gold, it's... It's not pure. It's not right. Maybe it's because our approach is wrong. You see, what we're about to see is that David views the scriptures like the sun. And you don't examine the sun and hold the sun under you. The sun examines you. The sun exposes all your flaws, not vice versa. And so it shows us that our approach to the scriptures must be one where we're approaching it saying, you're examining me, I'm not examining you. Now, of course, you're supposed to study this. Of course, you're supposed to tear it apart and, and study it. But you need to do it in a way in which you're inviting it to examine your life. And if you don't do that, it's not going to have power. And maybe that's the reason why you guys read your Bible and you don't get anything out of it. Because your approach is wrong. This is why in Protestant churches all over the world... There's pulpits that are elevated above the people. It's a common phrase to say, we sit under the word. Because as it's read, as it's preached, it's examining us. This is why in a Protestant pulpit, the preacher stands behind the word. Not to the side. My word is not equal to its authority. I stand behind it because its authority is ahead of me and it's examining me as I preach. This is the appropriate way to study this book. 
And when you do, what it will lead you to is it will lead you to your knees. This psalm starts with high praise, but it ends in humble prayer. Because God's speaking leads to our seeking. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Or a better way to say that is, who can know all of his faults? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. David is writing and he's like, hey, I know that even if I were to willfully obey all of God's commands, there's still a bunch of stuff in my heart that I missed. There's still a bunch of sin in my heart that I'm not aware of. There's still a bunch of hidden faults that I have. And so this just shows the infiltration of sin in our lives. There's not one aspect of our mind, will, or emotion that is not affected in one way or another by sin. And I've used this before as an illustration, but I think it fits so well. Sometimes I see this in my life. It's like I'm out there and I see trash in the parking lot and I go over and I like pick it up because I want our parking lot to be clean and not to have distractions like we talked about earlier in this place. But as I pick it up and I throw it away, you know what's going on in my heart? I hope other people are watching this. I hope they see how great of a pastor I am out here picking up trash. Thank you very much. I am humble. And it's just ridiculous. And what it goes to show us is every time you sing, every time you read, every time you give, every time you do something loving for your neighbor, it's never pure. There's still that shadow of sin and selfishness and pride deep in our heart. But guess what? God is a God who loves to forgive. That's why he prays. He says, declare me innocent. David, as a king, had the power to declare guilty or innocent, but not in his own life. In his own life, he says, God, you must declare me guilty or innocent. My opinion in this doesn't really matter. My only hope is to cast myself upon your mercy. And so because he understands the infiltration of sin, David pleads for mercy. And then in the next section, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins means flagrant sins. Sins that I know are wrong but choose to do anyways because I kind of like it. Um, I was talking with uh, Tony Macaluso today. He came up to me after the first service and he gave me this great illustration. He said this morning he was sitting down um, reading the scripture, just praying. And he saw in his backyard there's a mouse. And it's kind of cute and it comes out and it goes back in its little den. And he's like, I know I need to go kill that mouse. Because if I don't, it's going to have babies and there's going to be mice everywhere. And we're going to have an infestation here. But he's like, you know what? I kind of like it. And that's preventing me from going out there and doing the thing that I know I need to do. And many of us have sin in our life. And it's like that little mouse. And it's just he pokes out here and we're like, it's kind of cute. I kind of like it. But if you don't kill it, it's going to have an infestation in your life. And, and, And so... David says, please keep this from me. Keep, keep me from these presumptuous sins, these sins that I know are there, but I don't really want to get rid of. And he says, let them not have dominion over me. I mean, what a statement for a king to say. David has dominion over everything in his kingdom, but he doesn't have dominion over his own sin. And so he's crying out what this testifies to is the power of sin. Sometimes when people talk about sin, they talk about it merely as your actions, but it's not just actions, it's a power. You can read about this in the idea of like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia or in um, Harry Potter, this idea of being bewitched by a power. 
to do something that you know you're not supposed to do, but you're, you're controlled by it. And doesn't sin feel like that sometimes? So does sexual sin feel like that or, or um, like greed feel like that or covetousness or the, the constant busyness and unable to rest and trust in God or unforgiveness you have in your heart? It's like this thing that you know you're not supposed to do, but it's like it's controlling you and bewitching you. And so David says, please, I'm just casting myself at your mercy. And so in the first part, he pleads for mercy. In the second part, he pleads for God's rescue and power. And some of you have this kind of sin going on in your life and you're like, I just can't stop. You need to plead to God to exercise his power and victory in your life. You need to plead. And then he also, uh, he says here, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Only when you rescue me, only when you deliver me, will I be considered blameless and free from transgression. The deepest, one of the deepest desires of our human heart is to be declared blameless. You know how I know? I want you to do a little experiment. Start going around today and just start pointing out all people's faults. Just telling people where they're wrong and how messed up they are. You know what they're gonna do? What are they gonna do? They're gonna defend themselves. We always, and we defend themselves passionately. Why do we defend ourselves all the time? Because we want to be declared blameless. Um, why do we put up awards and we try to show off all the good stuff about ourselves? Because we think if we can boast about our good, the bad will kind of evaporate away. Why is it so hard to confess your deep and darkest secrets to people who are even your closest friends? To even your spouse sometimes. Because you don't want to be found out. Because deep down in us, we want to be declared blameless. David knows there's no hope in it happening on our own. The only hope is if God rescues us and God declares that over us. It's a righteousness that is given, not earned. And so David can plead this prayer humbly and boldly at the same time because that's what the word reveals. The word reveals God's mercy. Nature reveals God's power. The word reveals God's mercy and his love as well as his power. And so David is declaring this, but David knows because he's in a system where there would be sacrifices for forgiveness, but he, along with the rest of the Old Testament saints, were looking forward to a greater display of God's mercy. They, they were looking for a Messiah to come. And Hebrews 1 tells us this. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, so think of the Son, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's powerful. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So if you think about how the psalm is arranged and how we can look at it as New Testament saints, God reveals himself in creation. Then God reveals himself a little bit more through his word, but then he reveals himself fully through his son. In creation, we can know God is powerful. God says, know that I am powerful. Know that I am in control. Know that I am God. But in his son, he says, know that I am merciful. Know that I am loving 
Know that I know every secret sin in your heart and I chose to die for you anyways. Know that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Know that I know that your life is chaos and I am right here with you. Know that you are weak, but I am victorious. Know that sin rules over you, but I conquered it because I resurrected from the grave. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God's revelation. And where it should lead us is to verse 14, where we respond by saying, let's read this all together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is the appropriate response of somebody who's seen the revelation of Christ. And I just want to end with this. Notice how the psalm begins by saying the heavens are declaring, but it ends by saying, let me declare your glory. In other words, the cry of the Christian should be, help me to be like the heavens. That day after day, night after night, constantly give you praise because you have given me mercy though I didn't deserve it. That's our call. Lord, help us. Help us to be like the sun and the moon and the stars. Help us to be people who are just constantly lifting up your name and give us joy to do it. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your revelation. Thank you for making it so it's not that we're just trying to figure this whole thing out on our own, but you have spoken. Unclog our ears. Open our eyes. And help us to hear your voice. In your name we pray. Amen.